Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Have you ever wondered if you've got ADHD? Turns out a lot of successful entrepreneurs, in fact, struggle with ADHD. My next guest, Mark Patey, struggled with ADHD all the way through school. In fact, he tells me that he never actually read an entire book cover to cover all the way through his high school career. That didn't hold him back, though. He started and successfully exited six companies. So financially successful, he now owns a private jet. And interestingly, when he mingles with the other entrepreneurs that also have been so financially successful as to own their own plane, he finds virtually all of them suffer from the condition ADHD. Mark went on to actually write a book about ADHD and the effect of ADHD on the mind of entrepreneurs. He's going to talk a little bit about that book and a lot about the sale of his last business, Prodigy Engineering, in the interview. Without further ado, here's Mark Patey. Mark Patey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. So listen, I, I know you've been involved in a couple of businesses that you sold, but I, I really want to dig in on this business, Prodigy Engineering, that you sold last year. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about what you guys did? Oh, sure. We, uh, we saw a market emerging with hybrid vehicle system designs and a lot of people trying to get into the space. And my twin brother, Mike, and I had a technology company that uh, we had in the past that we sold a few years ago. And um, we kind of capitalized on emerging markets with uh, the need for electronic health care records. And we dove in knowing nothing about the healthcare space, but knowing that uh, since, you know, healthcare was changing, um, we needed to be in it. We got in it and we built it up and sold it three years later, did very, very well. And so with the hybrid vehicle space, we thought, you know, we're good at building fast and building to sell. And so we did it again. So this, this would be the uh, number six for us company that my twin brother, Mike, and I have been able to build and sell. Wow. So that was the purpose of that one was hybrid vehicle system design, specifically looking for the engineering challenges um, that other firms were intimidated by. So we, we took on battery climate control and some pretty high-end stuff, crash testing and validation to prove batter, batteries and how to make sure batteries don't start on fire and crashes. And um, So it was fun. Neat. So when I think of hybrids, I think of kind of Toyota Prius. Sure. So am, am I getting yep. that? Like, so what yeah, part of that absolutely. business did you work in? So we, we designed... Um, for on the GM platform, we designed the full system on their full-size GM platform for fully electric um, and extended-range electric vehicles on the Chevy truck and the Chevy van. So you're designing the systems, and, and you're selling that to them to to execute in their factories. Uh, yes, uh, and it primarily uh, our largest client was a company called Via Motors, a really neat uh, company out of Utah that um, uses the GM vehicle and then upfits to a fully electric system with an extended range capability using the engine as a generator. But unlike hybrid, where you have the engine and the electric working together and actually connected, for example, the engine has a connection to the drive wheels. These vehicles were fully electric, driven only off of electric, and the engine would never even start until you fully drained the batteries. So they are a truly electric vehicle, not a hybrid vehicle but then have the extended range capability of a generator. So we, we engineered all that, and then we would even go all the way to crash tests. So we'd have to design the vehicles, build the vehicles, and then go crash a bunch of brand new vehicles that 
you know, you spend by the time you're done with a full new design, you've got several million dollars in each vehicle that you go drive into a wall. <laughs> so you've got, this is six or eight businesses in for you guys, you and your brother. Yes, it is. So yep. Did you start this one with a view that, hey, we're going to get in and get out quickly? Um, that's generally our plan. How uh, many, how many my, years I, from start to, to exit in the case of uh, Prodigy? We, we've, uh, Prodigy was uh, just under four years, I believe. And so it seems like a really accelerated speed. And given you're <laughs> a relatively young guy, how, did, how, how are you, you know, what is your thinking in terms of going so quickly? Um, I, I just don't like to waste time. Uh, I think people people take way too long to do a lot of things, and that's why we were successful in everything we've done. We we don't make excuses, and we don't miss deadlines, and we don't allow anyone that works for us to make excuses or miss deadlines. And, and are you writing big checks, Mike, to, Mark, to get into these businesses? Because I mean, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, it, it can be expensive when you want to tackle something like that. When we said we're going to get into this space. And you start saying, okay, how many engineers do we want? Well, electrical engineers, we're going to need four or five of those. Okay, well, that's, you know, now we're committing to six, $700,000 a year salary without a single client customer product to offer. You know, then you got mechanical engineers and structural engineers. And so um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a big dice to roll. It's not like you're writing a check for a million dollars day one, but you're writing a check for payroll month one that can... It's a six-figure payroll check real fast. Are you a gambler? No, sir. No, sir, I can't do it. My gambling consists of, of going to a show in Vegas, and my biggest risk was did I like the show or not? <laughs> hundred bucks That's on my the risk. <laughs> Good deal. So what, what was the trigger that made you want to get out of Prodigy? I mean, only four years in. Um, you know, my brother and I have been about four years on every company we've built and sell, sold. Uh, I, we, we started our first company when we were 15 years old out of necessity. A family of 11 kids, and my dad started to lose his eyesight and couldn't provide for the family. And we're struggling on and off of welfare and help from neighbors. And so we started our first company just out of necessity. And um, we were able to sell that when I was 19 years old and sold it for a good chunk of money and we suddenly realized that you know you can build a company that's profitable which is great and can feed your family and that's a wonderful thing and you can ride that to till you die and that's a great plan but we learned off of the first company that geez it took us three to four years to build a company that was profitable enough that somebody wanted to buy it but then say they buy it at a at eight times EBITDA we're going wait a second we built it in three years. We sold it for what we'd make in eight. Why wouldn't we just sell it and do another one and sell it in three or four years and do another one and sell it in three or four years? And one of our company was, was in the tech play market, and our, our uh, multiple was much higher than, you know, eight times. And um, so that's, that's just kind of a model we've chosen. I've started another company with my two of my sons. That, that's not the plan. The plan isn't to build a company to sell it. The plan is to build a company that they can raise families on. And um, I'm pretty excited about that. And that's a long-term play, and it's a different strategy. Let's go back to Prodigy for a second. What was the, how, how big a company was it when you, when you decided to, to sell it, I mean, in terms of revenue or number of employees or some proxy for size? Um, we had um, between 50 and 70 employees, depending on 
uh, projects. We had people that would bring in under contract for, you know, a, a three, four month project. And then, and they, you know, had their own businesses that, that they would put on hold to help us hit deadlines, then move back. So it depended on the size of project. So not a real big company, but we did, um, you know, I, at least I don't think, you know, 50 plus employees is very big. Um, but, uh, we, we did big numbers. They were high end, high end projects. And, um, uh, I mean, millions, we did millions, but I don't want to, it's something we never talked about with employees or even senior management at the company. So it's not a, not something I'll get into any specifics on. Got it. So, but again, I'll go back to the triggering event. So you're growing this company, you've got it from zero to 50 employees in four years. Was there an event that, that happened, uh, a spark that was lit oh, to make sure. you want to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, what it came down to is our largest client um, was was spending, you know, easily five, ten million million per project that they were piecing out to us. Um, originally, they were using uh, suppliers out of Detroit. They finally realized that uh, this little company, Prodigy in Utah, could get the jobs done for half the money and half the time and was always on time on budget. And uh, they, somehow people in Utah, I guess, still know how to work instead of have meetings about work. Um, that's their words, not mine. We were, but we did work hard. But at any rate, um, they started using us for absolutely everything they were doing and uh, had a project that was coming down the pipe that they knew our bid would be in the 10 to $20 million price range. And, and uh, they knew they had quite a few projects coming up shortly after and they finally made what i think is probably a wise decision said geez we could buy this company um and be ahead of the game uh you know within a year or two we'd have got the whole company for free essentially versus what they would have paid us for the project so take us inside that negotiation you've got your biggest customer going from on one <laughs> you know one hand a customer to the other hand a potential buyer I mean, did they approach you? Was there a, a letter of intent uh, yeah, signed? What they, does that look like? They, they approached us, and um, it was an interesting discussion. I mean, the I, I was uh, chosen as the lead negotiator on our behalf, and and um, I was charged with keeping our attorneys in line and and uh, keeping them from screwing up the deal, which often attorneys do. They don't want deals to get done because as soon as they're done, their paychecks stop coming. Um, but. And then their lead negotiator was the uh, then the president of the company, and he's a he's a ball buster. And we came, I mean, we came to some pretty bold, stern, I mean, aggressive negotiations from time to time. And over and, what? Uh, well, for example, uh, I had a price in mind where we didn't want to go under, or we just soon keep the company. And he had a price in mind he didn't want to go over, and those prices were, I mean. 15 million apart. Um, and that's a, that's a big bridge to gap. And I was, I was the immovable object and he was the unstoppable train. And, and, you know, I remember one time and specifically he, and I knew it was coming and I'd thought about, you know, how I would reply if he ever brought it up because the underlying message was there and never said outright. And I remember in one of the negotiations, he leans forward to me and he says, Mark, we're your biggest customer. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't sell us your company for what we want to pay for your company, we're going to put you effing out of business tomorrow. And I just smiled and laughed. I said, well, I appreciate that. I said, you are our biggest customer and I would hate to lose you as a client. But if we don't sell, 
and you decide that you want to go back to Detroit and pay Detroit's rates and work on Detroit's timeline, I think you'd be making a mistake. I think there's a way that I cannot sell you the company and you can stay a customer. But if we lose you as a customer, I'll be sad. But we'll be fine. We've got other clients. We've got other customers. Certainly, we'd lose a lot of revenue, but we'd be okay. Are you okay losing us as a vendor? And he just leaned back in his chair and he says, wow, I didn't expect you to have the guts to not fold over on that one. I said, well, it is what it is. I think you'd make a mistake to lose us as a vendor, but I'm not going to be wrestled like this. We both win if we can make this happen. So why don't we just make it happen without the threats? And what's interesting is what went from cordial in meetings and, and from barely cordial to hostile in negotiations, now we're very, very close friends. And there's a great deal and level of respect between he and I. And do you credit it with that one inter, inter, interchange between the two of you? There's, there's no question. There's no question that there are those in life, and there's a lot of them, that when they step up and stick their nose to your nose and bump their chest against your chest, if you take one inch back, they own you forever. And you can't be, especially in a negotiation. Now, I've seen people... I've had a lot of people come to me and say, help me out. You've sold several companies. How, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? And I've seen people get crazy blue sky optimistic visions of what their company's worth and they get stubborn. And I'm like, look, you're, you're being stubborn and you're being pig headed and you're going to lose a deal because you're not realistic. But there's other times where people will push until you say no. And I would say that in any negotiation for the sale of a company, until you say no, they will push. And you have to say no, and you have to say it confidently, boldly, with a valid reason why it's no. And on top of that, I had to be okay with the outcome. It couldn't be a bluff that I couldn't live with. I knew that there was an underlying message, and someday he may come right out and say, you're going to lose us, and your company is going to be worth you know, 50% of what it is tomorrow. I knew that message was coming and I had to be ready to lose him as a customer. And I had to have a valid reason why he wouldn't want to do that. And he had to know that I wasn't going to punch back and I wasn't going to step back. And so what gave you the, the confidence, the stones, if you'll allow me to use that expression, to actually not blanket that request in the sense that, I mean, did you, I mean, weren't, weren't you, weren't you motivated to sell your company? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I thought in, in great length, I thought if they come down to saying, we're going to, if you don't come down on your price, we're, we're going to, we're not going to use you as a customer or as a vendor. I actually uh, thought, what does that mean to us? And I thought immediately it means probably letting go of 25 people. That's tough. That's 25 families. That's 25 house payments, probably 50 car payments, and a lot of braces payments. And I mean, these are real people with real things that are impacted in a real heavy way. Um, but I also believed, truly believed, that we were good enough and strong enough of a company and a vendor that they would truly make a mistake by leaving. 
that they would, and, and I recognized that they might do that just to make it hurt us for a while and then come back in with an offer six months later. Uh, but I had to, I, I don't know. I, I, I'll give you one short story. I don't know how long your little things are normally, but I, I learned a story a long time ago. The second company my twin brother and I started was a company called RecWorld. And we specialized in family recreation products and had stores with RVs and motorhomes and fifth wheels, those kinds of things. And one of our stores was uh, in the family recreation product lines was hot tubs. Well, I had a guy come into my store once, want a really good deal and a really expensive hot tub. And we battled back and forth for a while. And he finally says, just go talk to your manager. If you'll sell the hot tub for 6,000 bucks, then I'll take it. And I thought, this guy, I can't, I can't accept that or he'll be ticked. So he, he says, go talk to your manager. I said, look, I, I can make this decision. I didn't want to tell him I happen to own the company. But because I was so young, my brother Mike and I often never told people we owned the company because they didn't take us serious. You know, twins, we were runt friends like most twins, skinny, little, looked 10 years younger than we really were. Anyway, so I went back and told my brother Ken, who had a small piece, I said, this guy's offered 6,000 bucks. We got a counter at anything above 6,000 bucks. He says, you know how much money we make on that hot tub at 6,000 bucks? I said, I know exactly, but you have to know this guy. If we say yes, he's going to walk. He says, no way, we're not risking this one. If he said he'll give 6,000, we're taking it. He walks right past me. I couldn't stop him because we're in view of the customer. He walks up, shakes the guy's hand and says, sir, $6,000, you've got a deal. And the guy jerked his hand back, got a disgusted look on his face and says, damn it. I knew I offered too high. And that was it. I couldn't save it. He says, I knew it. I knew it. And he was walking out. I said, let's talk about this. He says, no, now I got to go to another hot tub dealer and start all over again. And if we had come back and said, we can't do 6,000, but we can do 61, 23, and 47 cents. He'd have felt like he pushed as far and he got what he wanted. So the reality is I learned an important lesson at that point that I've taken into every business. The perception is reality more than reality itself. But I guess on the other side of the equation, I mean, a lot of our listeners are going to go through this sale process and they're going to get an acquirer that says, look, our, you know, this has been a nice conversation. We've had a nice song and dance, but, you know, we've been at this now for three months and our final price to buy your business is X and we're not going a penny more. At some point, they, lose, they do risk losing that offer, do they not, if they, if they don't accept that offer? Sure, but who cares? I mean, think about it. If the company was worth buying, the company's worth keeping. So if, if they are so afraid of losing the offer, then they're either lying to themselves about the value of the company or they're lying to the potential buyer about the value of the company. So which is it? Does that make sense? Sure, sure. There is a real value to the company. And, and I am shocked at how many people go into selling a company when they're lying to themselves and the potential buyer. And I'm like, look, sit down, be honest with yourself. If it's worth selling to somebody, it's worth them paying that much. It should be worth you keeping it for that much. Should it not? And it's amazing to see people scratch their head and go, ah, oh, boy, that's, that's a tough question, Mark. I'm like, well. What was your relationship like with Mike growing up? Best friends. 
To what extent do you feel like you need to get and win a negotiation because you don't want to let Mike down? Oh, I mean, there's certainly that kind of a thing, but we've, we've done enough business together. There's a, a, a level of respect and understanding. Um, on the last uh, several deals we've done, uh, when it's come down to a time where we're going to sit down at the negotiation table, not only has he said, Mark, why don't you take lead on this? Um, in the case of this last one, he said, Mark, I'm not even going to come into the room. I'm like, well, why not? He says, well, because I get emotionally tied up in it and you're able to stay calm when you need to and be bold when you need to. And I said, that's because I know where I stand really. He says, I know. And I get emotionally tied up in it and you handle this so well. Now, Mike will say that, but you need to know he's a brilliant man. He's been very, very, very successful. In fact, he did a couple businesses that, that I didn't see the full vision of that did really well for him. Um, and I would, you know, he's, he's, some people say, geez, Mark, I'd love to have your life. And I'm like, well, geez, I understand. I look at my twin brother, Mike, and I just want to have the money he loses in his couch cushions because he's really, <laughs> really done well. But what's interesting is despite how well he's done, he's honest with himself where his strengths and weaknesses are. And when it comes to negotiations, he likes to put me at the lead and, and step right out of it so that his emotions don't get in the way. And for your listeners, listeners, check yourself at the door and do it, do it the night before and the, the hours before, the minutes before. Take a big, deep breath and say, set the emotions aside. No one really cares when you're selling your company how much heart and soul you put in it. Nobody really cares that it was started because your dad died and left you this little thing and it was your vision. I mean, that's all great, but leave it because it will get in the way of an actual, true, honest negotiation on real value, real proposition. And what you find yourself doing is, is using reasons why you worry about selling your company as reasons why they should pay you more. And you'll think when I'm saying that, oh, I wouldn't do that. I'm smarter than that, but I'm telling you. Oh my gosh, I can't, I just can't believe how many times people let their heart and soul get in the way of a good, honest negotiation for buy-sell. And if you can keep it about the facts and stay focused on the facts, issues that could drive up or down the value of your company are discussed and appropriately drive the price up or down of your company the way you want it to, as opposed to getting lost in the weeds over passion Let's or go ego. Back. Let's go back to Prodigy for a moment. So you have this tete-a-tete with the, the, the buyer. You kind of come to a mutual respect of one another. I'm assuming there was some sort of due diligence period after you'd agreed on a price uh, before the check cleared. How long was that in your case? Oh, um, almost, almost non, non-existent. Um, from the point we came to terms, the due diligence and legal was four weeks. Um, and I would say a week of that was due diligence and three weeks of that was law firms making sure I spent over $100,000 on paperwork for absolutely no reason whatsoever. So. <laughs> so well, stupid. One of the things that I think a lot of people listening to this will be saying to themselves is, okay, so he's negotiating with his number one customer. 
he's got to give them enough in that negotiation to get comfortable writing a big check. So he's got to give them details about the business. How does he ensure that if the deal doesn't fall apart, that that customer doesn't go and use that information or use those connections of those employees uh, to compete against? So how does he deal I, I, with it? Well, you know, they, they wanted to see our books, and I just set the stage first. Um, you know, there's the the phrase you hear, over-promise, under-deliver. Um, it's very important, and it's important in negotiating, too. And it's even important when you're presenting to them something that could be potentially ugly for you. In this case, it was they get to see how many millions we make on projects with them, right? They get to see here's here's their bid structure, price structure. Here's what we write a check for. Here's after all contracts and vehicles are crashed and everything's done. Here's, you know, the margin. And and what I did is just went into it and said, guys, you know, there's this big kind of thing we're going to have to deal with. And they said, well, what's that? I said, you're going to know how filthy, stinking rich I've been getting with you as a customer. And they said, what? I said, yep, flat out, filthy, stinking rich. And it might be really tough for you to see. However, that being said, know that you continue to use us because we're worth it. And I don't want to think for a second that you guys, and I don't want you to think for a second that if a deal doesn't happen, that you get to come back and beat me up because you know how much money I made. The money I make is based on the products and services I provide that are worthwhile versus going to one of your past vendors on these kinds of engineering projects. And they're like, okay, all right, interesting. And then when they saw the numbers, because I used things like filthy, stinking rich, an obscene amount of money I've made on you guys. I set the stage so big and so ugly that in their mind, they're going, holy crap, what were we paying a dollar and he's making 99 cents? You know, I painted a picture so that when they saw it, they went, oh, you know what? That's actually reasonable. That's not, that's not like, okay, yeah, that's fine. So that was my strategy. It seemed to work. Now, obviously the deal went through. So who knows what really would have happened if the deal didn't go through and they came back and tried to use that as leverage on, on uh, future uh, projects. But that was my strategy, was paint a big, huge, I made so much money on you, you're going to be offended picture up front so they didn't look at the books and feel like they were slapped in the face. You know, I, I got to address it first. It's, it's like anything with any customer ever. If you call a customer first, they're not, because you know there's a problem. If you call them first, they, they're not mad. If you wait till they actually get mad enough that they call you, then you've got a real problem because they're all worked up. So I just took that strategy. So that helps with, obviously, you know, margin discussions. But were there, were there any things that you held back from them you just would not reveal until the, the deal was, was completely signed and, and you were 100% confirmed it was going through? Nope. Nope. How did you tell your employees at Prodigy that you'd sold the company? Um, you know, it's like anything. I, you try to keep things a secret and I want to talk about secrets for a second, by the way, for your listeners, because it's important that they understand what I've learned about secrets, but you try to keep a cell a secret and no matter what people start to find out and there's rumors and there's talk and people are concerned and who's going to get fired or who's going to go, or are we moving to another state? You know, all this stuff. Um, but I'll tell you what I've learned to help prevent that. Don't tell the people you trust. 
to keep a secret. Because here's the thing, trusting people, someone that you can trust, a trustworthy person, there's a better way to say it, a trustworthy person also believes other people are trustworthy. And so if you want to keep a secret, don't tell the trustworthy person because the trustworthy person's going to go, okay, I appreciate that. I'll keep that to myself. And they're thinking, except Tom, because I can trust Tom to not tell anyone because Tom's trustworthy. And so you tell Tom, who is trustworthy, and he goes, you know what? I will totally keep that a secret. But you know what? I trust so-and-so. It's not the lying, cheating, sleazy employees that, that's uh, a horrible thing to say. You don't, you're trying not to keep those people around. But it's not the people that you worry about gossiping that gossip. It's the people that you trust completely are the ones that spread the gossip specifically because you trust them and they trust people and they trust people and they trust people. So if you want to keep gossip or rumors from getting around, don't you dare tell the person you trust the most because they have somebody they trust the most. And soon enough, everyone you really care about that are really trustworthy, who are your best employees, all of them know exactly what's going on. Is that, what, two bits. is that what happened at Prodigy? <laughs> it, it's happened in every company I've sold. I, it wasn't until Prodigy that I went, you know what? I went back to people. I said, who told you? Okay, great. Who told you and why? And who told you and why? And who told you and why? And every time it came down to, because I knew I could trust him 100%. I said, that's why you told him. And that's why rumors spread. It's not because you don't trust him. No one goes to the guy they don't trust and tells them something. How did that affect your relationship with your employees? Um, I didn't let it affect it at all. I, I just said, guys, let me tell you something. Don't tell people you trust to keep a secret because they'll tell someone they trust to keep a secret and it won't stop. So, I just made it a learning lesson. So in your case, I mean, was there a, a, like a, a moment of epiphany when you realized everybody already knew or did you bring everybody together in a factory floor and say, look, here's the deal. We're, as you know, we're selling or how, just give me the mechanics of how you actually reveal it to them. Yeah, we, we pulled them all into the break room and we had a lunch provided and, and said rumors have been out that we were selling the company and, and uh, you all know who we're selling to. And those rumors are absolutely factual, and that's happened. And these are the mechanics of what's going to change, and here's why you shouldn't freak out, and here's why you shouldn't be afraid, but here's some of the changes that are coming. I mean, it's a, it's a painful discussion everyone that sells a company is going to have. There's a lot of people, um, if not all the people in your company, that work for you because they're working for you, not the company you're selling. And when you leave... Um, it's painful and it's real. Did you choose to share any of the proceeds of the, of the company sale with, with key staff or rank and file employees? Um, uh, not rank and file. No. Um, you know, a lot of the, we had a lot of staff that are, are high turnover positions, you know, or an electrical and mechanical engineering design firm. And we had our own shops and would prototype parts. And you had, I mean, people like, Welders aren't always the ones that stick around the longest, and sometimes machinists go from one machine shop to another. And, and so there's some employees that you just, you just aren't giving ownership to, but um, all the, the, the senior management team um, all got a win. 
And and was that? I mean, did you you and Mike sit down and say, okay, we're going to give you know X percentage of the, of the proceeds to the senior staff, or was was there any formula that you used? It's, yeah, yeah, it, we just sat down and, and had a percentage, and some of them, of course, um, you know, you're going to start a company that's going to tackle big, big, expensive, crazy business idea that we gave ownership in to get them to leave their jobs where they were pr- currently at. You know, we we said here's here's what we're willing to give you and here's a two-year contract and and here's 3% if you come on board and that is earned 1% a year for three years and at that point we'll decide if there's more but don't expect it, don't count on it unless you're putting in money with us. You know, we had a few of those kind of deals as well. Got it, got it. And how was it to, you know, we a lot of the entrepreneurs we talk to typically own 100% of their companies. So having a few minority uh, shareholders like that is interesting. Um, how did, did you have to include them in the negotiation process as shareholders? Did you reveal the, the price to no, them? Did you, no, because no. our articles of organization weren't set up that way. Um, so you had they, two, two, they sh- didn't, two classes of shares? Correct. They didn't, they, they weren't a, a voting share. It wasn't like there needed to ma- be a majority or a, or a, you know, unanimous vote, we still had full control of our company. But let me let me say something uh, at slight risk to me, but in hopes to help your audience. Um, giving ownership in a company uh, can run the risk of a little jealousy and envy that's not there when they're not an owner. Um, I even mentioned to one of the guys that got some ownership or got some of the company when it was sold. I said, you know, I wish I never gave any ownership again. And he was really hurt. And I understand. Um, he's like, you talking about me? And I said, well, not specifically, no. But the problem is employees, um, for the most part, are grateful for their job or they would have quit. They'd have moved on. People with ownership um, feel like they're entitled to decisions and to big checks. And uh, sadly, there's, there's, and I'm not saying with this company or this set, I'm not, I'm not specifically talking about Prodigy. It's just I've learned with other businesses that as soon as there's ownership, even just 1%, um, there comes a time when the company's up and it's running and it's making money and I'm not there. Because I didn't build the company to have a job. I built the company to support my lifestyle, which is not go to work. That's my goal. And I work my guts out and I risk financially significantly. And I slave and stress and like all your entrepreneurs have done, sleepless nights, thinking about work when you're supposed to be having dinner with your wife at a restaurant. You didn't hear a dang thing she said for the last five minutes and she catches you because you were thinking about work. You do all of that. And then you have a company that's profitable and then maybe you don't show up to work till noon or you don't show up for three or four days or you take off to Europe. Um, the employees, I've never had a problem with employees ever that I'm gone or that I'm absent. But I've had problems on a regular basis with anyone who has some ownership, especially when the company sold. And they're like, geez, for the last year or two, you haven't even showed up for work. I'm the only reason this company is worth what it is. I'm the one that's here all day, every day. And it's like, well, yeah, and you get a salary for that. You're making 200 grand a year. You're making 100 grand a year. You're, that's what you're paid to be here, so I don't have to be here. But you will never win that conversation. You will lose that conversation every time. 
there is, and again, I'm not saying specifically about Prodigy, because I got fortunate with, I had some good partners that, minority partners in that, that were gifted ownership. But even people that didn't buy ownership, just gifted ownership for being there, when they see the size of your check and the size of their check and think to themselves, I'm here 12 hours a day and he's here six, that can cause some damage that sometimes is unrepairable. Great wisdom, great story. Um, what are you doing now? I understand you're a pilot. Yeah, I, I, uh, I race airplanes as a hobby. Um, I collect, build, and fly planes and, and uh, have a helicopter as well, which I donate to search and rescue. For the last six years, I've been flying search and rescue missions um, here in Utah County. And um, I was fortunate enough to get a, a citizen life-saving award from the state of Utah for some of those efforts. And, and um, you know, I, I, I decided I need to, to write a book about um, one of the things that I believe made me successful. I'm, I'm your stereotypical eccentric uh, millionaire or um, ADHD entrepreneur. All the friends that I have that have private jets, you know, you kind of get in the club, who else has a private jet in the, in the Valley Club, right? And you all know each other and you talk about what your next plane's going to be and how you like that plane. And I discovered every one of them was ADHD. And I barely survived school as an ADHD kid in special ed. And um, I have this distracted, hyperactive brain, which is part of the reason I think I've been successful. But with that comes some very unique challenges. And, and uh, so I, I've put a lot of time and effort into studying that um, gift and curse that ADHD is. And I wrote a book called Addicts and Millionaires, The Gift and Curse of ADHD. And that book has just gone nuts. In fact, I was a keynote speaker at the conference just two days ago. And I've been doing about two conferences a month on ADHD because of the success of the book. And, and that's what I've been mostly doing. I, so I, I play, I go to airplane races, I do search and rescue, I hang out with my wife and kids, and I speak to people about leveraging the gifts of ADHD to become successful business owners and managing the curse that you get with that beautiful, brilliant, distracted brain of yours. Mark Patey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.